This is an oral history interview with former Senator Bill Armstrong for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Washington office of the Investment Company Institute, where the senator is visiting as a member of the board for a board meeting today. Mm -hmm. And today is Wednesday, May 2nd, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Let's start out with uh, your recollection of your first encounter with mm -hmm. Bob Dole? I haven't the faintest idea, but I'm sure it was at some kind of a political event. Uh, I suppose it was at uh, a Lincoln Day dinner or a fundraising event or something like that because uh, I knew Bob Dole. I mean, I had met him. I didn't know him well, but I, I was aware of him and had shaken his hand uh, long before I came to Washington. And uh, so I'm sure it's when I was in the state legislature in Colorado and he was coming to town for a Lincoln Day dinner, a political event. Uh, Campaigning for somebody—it was in that kind of a uh, of a setting. Do you uh, do you remember um, his running for the vice presidency, and did he come to Colorado at all during that time? I do remember his running for vice president, of course, but I, I don't recall specifically whether he did that or not. N not because uh, my memory has failed completely, although it's failing, I guess, but but because uh, his visits to Colorado in that era were commonplace. I mean, he was in and out of Colorado all the time, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I'm sure will come out in your interviews is that he was every place all the time. I mean, uh, he, he logged more miles in airplanes than airline pilots did. Uh, he was always going someplace. And in fact, there was a time, uh, later than the period you're referring to, but there was a time, I think, when he was on a plane four or five nights a week after the Senate was done, he'd jump on a plane and go to Cincinnati or Denver or New York or someplace for an event and did that just week after week after week after week. And uh, so I, I just don't remember when it was because he was in Colorado a lot. He was an important figure in Colorado, uh, not so much because he was a neighboring senator, although of course Kansas and Colorado are neighbor states, but because uh, he was regarded as a uh, uh, even before he was really uh, an official leader, he was regarded as a leader. He was a he was a person that Republicans looked up to, looked for uh, to for hope. I mean, uh, some of those uh, years that I'm talking about uh, uh, were uh, were really pretty desperate times. If you were a Republican, you felt like you were on the endangered species list, and uh, yet he was full of energy and full of vitality, and and was able to preach the gospel and and uh, made those who heard it feel good about the party and about themselves and about the future of the country. During your six years in the House of Representatives, did you have any contact with him? Yes, I did, a little. N not a huge amount, but I had some. And in fact, uh, uh, again, uh, by this time, by the time I was in the House of Representatives and I was elected in 1972, Bob Dole was by now an established senator and was uh, highly thought of, and uh, he was one of the people that we looked up to. And of course, when it came time for me to uh, uh, run for the United States Senate, uh, I sought him out and asked if he would endorse me in the primary, which he declined to do. Uh, I was running in the primary against an astronaut, Jack Swigert, and uh, a good guy, by the way, uh, who, who later 
died just days before he was to be sworn into the House of Representatives himself. But, uh, but Bob didn't think that was uh, necessary or appropriate. I thought if I could somehow prevail upon him to endorse my candidacy, it would help me a lot in the primary, which it undoubtedly would have. Turned out I was okay and won the primary anyway, but, uh, but uh, he was a natural person for me to go to. I knew him well enough to do that. Considered him to be uh, uh, sort of, uh, well, I considered him not to be exactly a conservative godfather, but I, con- I considered him to be a conservative leader and a person who's, who's, whose word would carry a lot of weight with uh, the kind of people who vote in Republican primaries in the state of Colorado. In fact, that's true, you know, this is now more than three decades later, that's still true. If Bob Dole were to come to Colorado and, and say vote for Smith or vote for Jones, it would carry a lot of weight. Now, <clears throat> he was uh, the uh, chairman of the Republican National Committee he was. for uh, a couple of years. Did you have any contact with him in, when he was? Well, of course, he was in the Senate during that, that period, and so I was well aware of that. Although my relationship uh, with Bob was never primarily related to his position as chairman of the Republican National Committee. Uh, he was, as I recall, what was called the, uh, I may be wrong about that, was he called the general chairman? Was there also a full-time working chairman at that, uh, at that juncture? I'm, I'm not sure of that. But, but those of us in the Senate, uh, while we were well aware of his uh, leadership of the party and, and also, for that matter, of the reasons that he was chosen, because he was Mr. Republican, let's face it. He was the, he was the uh, person who personified the ideals and the energy and the, the future of the party. Uh, while we were aware of that, we mostly thought of him as, uh, a, as a senator and related to him at that, uh, at that level. <coughs> now, he, uh, he was carrying the water for President Nixon for a long time, known as Nixon's man in the, in the Senate. He was. And then they, that relationship got a little strained when Nixon decided to appoint uh, Bush as the RNC chairman. Were you uh, aware? I, I wasn't that in on that. I was aware of it. I, of course knew about it, but I wasn't consulted about it or in any way uh, involved in that decision. Did you occupy a leadership role in the House? No, I did not. No. I was in the House for three terms uh, and uh, served on the Armed Services Committee and then later on the Appropriations Committee, one of the worst experiences of my life, I might add, uh, but did not uh, seek or or, uh, win any position of uh, party leadership. You intrigue me with that comment. Uh, can you explain why? Sure, because it's a huge committee. Uh, I left the Armed Services Committee, uh, of which I was a junior member, everything is by seniority, because I was useless, uh, because everything the committee was trying to do I agreed with, and instead opted to go to the Appropriations Committee, where I was also a junior member. I think I was about number 54 out of 55 or something like that, and I think Jack Kemp was either 54th and I was 55th or vice versa, way down at the bottom. And I didn't agree with anything the Appropriations Committee was doing. I mean, there were days when I would go home literally sick to my stomach at the way these people were wasting the, the material wealth and the accumulated savings and the work and effort and thrift of the people of this country, and they were just throwing it out the window. 
people who had never earned anything in the private sector in their life, who had no idea of what the real value of the, of the, the sweat and tears and toil of the people who had made this money, and they would just confer it on the darndest projects and enterprises. And, and literally, I found it terribly frustrating. And uh, I guess during the time I was on the uh, House Appropriations Committee, I probably wrote more minority opinions and dissenting views than the rest of the committee put together. And in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the senior members of the committee, uh, as an act of friendship, came to me and he said, you know, Bill, if you, if you keep acting this way, you'll never get any dams built in your district. And I said, well, that'll be fine. I haven't got enough water in my district that I could, I could, I could, I could impound all the water in my district in a teacup, so it'll be fine. But he was, you know, he was trying to show me the ropes, and I did not wish to be shown those ropes. I, I thought they were wasting the money and in the years since then. See, this would have been... Uh, even that would have been more than 30 years ago. In the years since then, it's gotten infinitely worse. And frankly, I'm just disgusted with the, with the, uh, with the lack of, uh, of responsibility of people who spend the public money. There's a real, f is it a philosophical difference? Or, or I guess I'm trying to get at uh, the, the source of your animus. Um, and how you perceive the interests of, I guess, presumably liberal Democrats. No, this was both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, in fact, uh, I was a minority within the minority because Republicans were in the minority in those years. But no, it wasn't the Democrats. I mean, they were worse, but the Republicans... Uh, actually, I was more disgusted with the Republicans because I expected the Democrats to be big spenders. I mean... That's what the Democrats stand for, and I don't really have a lot of problem with people doing what they say they're going to do. I mean, they, they went out to the country and said, look, vote for us. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of money on public works projects. We're going to create new programs. We're going to provide funding for this, that, and the other thing. The Republicans said the opposite. The Republicans said, we're going we're gonna to balance the budget. I mean, balance the budget. You talk about a old-fashioned term that's seldom heard anymore. Uh, but the Republicans didn't really mean it. In fact, here we are all these years later, they still don't mean it. Uh, there's some who do, and there was a brief period when most Republicans in Congress felt that way. But that's kind of come and gone, and so now they're paying lip service to an ideal in which I passionately believe, and they only want to use it for political advantage, in my opinion. So I was more uh, I was more out of sorts with the Republicans actually than I was the Democrats, and I wasn't. It was nothing personal about it. It's just this sense of of um, of the betrayal of idealism, betrayal of the values of the country, and the betrayal of all these millions of people out there who are who are sacrificing and driving old cars so that they'd have money to send their kids to college and who are making tough decisions. I mean, elderly people who are trying to decide, uh, shall, I, shall I save a meal or two a week so I'll have money enough to send a Christmas gift to my children? These are the people we're taking money from and conferring it on, on uh, people who are much less worthy in many cases. Now, not in every case. Certainly there's some good government programs, but, I mean, the waste and extravagance and the and the the gay, light-hearted manner in which they just shoveled money out 
just drove me nuts. What was your yardstick uh, for evaluating a government program and deciding whether or not you wanted to commit money to it? Well, uh, I always felt that national defense was a high priority and, of course, is a legitimate function of the national government because, first of all, the national government is the only one that can really perform that function. Uh, we certainly don't want uh, the state of Colorado and Iowa and Nebraska providing tanks and airplanes and conducting foreign policy and, and uh, defending the country. Uh, surely there are some other things, too. For example, I think one of the great successful projects in the history of the federal government was the interstate highway system, uh, which, by the way, began originally under Eisenhower as the National Defense Interstate Highway System. That was what they called it. But, but it's had an enormous effect on the, on the country. And again, it's something that the national government uniquely can do. Uh, I, I felt the GI Bill of Rights, for example, was a great program, and I had something to do with getting it reinstated when it lapsed. Again, because uh, it was related to, to, to fulfilling an obligation to servicemen and women, and then later my interest in it was triggered by the volunteer army, that uh, research showed that the opportunity to get an education was an important incentive in, in bringing uh, talented men and women into the military and, and giving them an incentive to do that. So certainly there are some good government programs. Uh, farm subsidies, absolutely not. And in fact, I, people in my state get lots of farm subsidies. Uh, I went into the, to the uh, farm areas of my state and I said it's time to abolish every one of these programs. And I said that over and over again, said it year after year after year. Uh, one year, every single candidate for public office, or a federal office in Colorado, endorsed the concept of 100% parity. Are you familiar with that? Well, it's one of the dumbest ideas that you can imagine. And I was the only one who said, don't do it. Interestingly, uh, here I am, a, an ardent foe of wheat subsidies, corn subsidies, any kind of subsidies, uh, wouldn't endorse the idea of... Uh, of 100% uh, parity, and on one occasion actually confronted a howling mob, I mean literally a mob that had a flatbed truck with a scaffold on it and me hanging an effigy from it over this issue. And yet when election time came around, uh, that year I, I won with about two-thirds of the votes in the state. And, and Colorado is not, by the way, a Republican state. Uh, uh, during the 70s and 80s I was really the only Republican elected to governor or senator during those years. And uh, in the farm areas, I carried them very strongly. And it, it's interesting to think why that is, uh, not because it's about me, but because it says something about voters. What it says to me is that voters are very patient, very tolerant with those who disagree with their, their views if they think that person is, is motivated by some conviction or principle, even if they disagree with it. If they think you're just pandering to get their votes, they're on you like a pack of dogs. And I, I think actually that's the way it should be. I mean, if, if people show that their vote is just up for sale, well, then if they don't give it to you, you ought to be down on them pretty fast. On the other hand, if somebody is standing for principle, you ought to cut them a little, a little slack. So in general, uh, 
I, I'm, I'm very conservative. I mean, let's face it, I'm so conservative I squeak. Uh, but I just think that uh, spending public money is a, almost a sacred trust. I wouldn't go quite that far, but it's, it is certainly a, a public duty, a public trust, and should be done with the greatest discretion. And um, it should not be used to subsidize uh, for long periods of time any group of citizens, uh, even even poor people. And, and I, I think the government has a responsibility to, to help people who are poor or disabled. But it shouldn't be a way of life. It shouldn't be permanent. It should be uh, a program that subsidizes them in their hour of need and then helps them get out of their hour of need. And I suppose there's a few that for one reason or another, especially disability, will never be able to be self-supporting, then of course the government should do that. But, but to support just a whole generation and then another generation and then another generation of people whose life is just predicated on getting money from the government, absolutely not. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but uh, I am what used to be known as a fiscal conservative. But then I'm about I'm, I'm about every kind of conservative that there is, fiscal conservative being one of them. So what were the steps that motivated you to leave the House and, and run for the Senate? Well, uh, I very much disliked my service in the House. Uh, I thought it worthy, but I didn't enjoy it because I was a minority within the minority, uh, because our leaders in the House were... Uh, that is, our Republican leaders in the House, were basically accommodating themselves to the situation, getting along the best they could with the Democratic leaders, and trying to get some dams built in their districts. And uh, 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 I, that's not my style. I wanted to take the case to the, to the country, to the people, to the voters, and uh, to make a case on principle. And I was simply not situated in the U.S. House of Representatives to do that. Now, a United States Senator, that's a very different thing. A U.S. Senator got a big voice, big platform, and it seemed to me as a, as a relatively new House member, I'd been there at this point when I decided to run a little over four years, five years, I guess, it seemed to me that that was a, a logical transition, and in any case, I knew I wanted out of the House. I did not like it. Um, were I to go back there today, uh, I suppose that, that my attitude would be a little different, that I would be a little less uh, impatient about things, a little, a little more understanding of, of different points of view and, and recognize that somebody that comes from a state where the interests are different or so on, uh, that it would be, it'd be less personal to me. But, but I didn't like the House at all. Now, I love the Senate love the Senate. Because even if you're a junior senator, if you're a, uh, the, the newest senator from a minority party or whatever, you can have a big impact on things. And after you're there for a while, you can have a huge impact on things. And uh, I, I just felt that as a House member, I didn't have an impact on anything. Uh, I just, you know, and I considered, shall I hang around here for years and try and work my way up in the up in the structure, and it, it just wasn't for me. Well, I, was, I had an incumbent uh, Democratic senator uh, to run against, and uh, so, though the odds did not favor my election, 
uh, it was an easy decision for me to make. My decision was really go home and run my business or go home and run for the Senate, which is what I did. And tell me about your primary battle. Well, I ran against Jack Swigert in the primary. Jack's a wonderful, uh, was a wonderful guy. He had been an astronaut and uh, uh, was a very popular, well-known figure. And um, uh, he was, uh, well, I, all I can say is he was, he was a wonderful guy. And we had a classic primary in the sense that it was not bitter, it was not personal, uh, it wasn't divisive. Uh, he talked his issues. I talked mine. Uh, I think there, I think he would have said that uh, Armstrong's too conservative to get elected, but that's about as tough as he ever got with me, and I don't think I ever said anything about him. Uh, in fact, that year, you couldn't hardly get me to talk about anything except cutting taxes. If uh, If somebody said, well, what about the environment, I would say, well, you know, first thing about a good environment is having a job, that means we've got to cut taxes. And if somebody said, well, what about racial justice? I'd say, well, I'm just back from, from Five Points, which is a ghetto area in Denver, and down there they want jobs, and that means we've got to cut taxes. And it wouldn't matter what the issue was. And if somebody said, well, Jack Swigert is a, is a great guy, I'd say, yeah, he's a wonderful astronaut, but I'm better at cutting taxes. That, so I didn't talk about hardly anything during either the primary or the general election. In fact, I started out after the primary about 30 points behind in the polls and ended up winning with over 60 percent of the vote. And afterward, Floyd Haskell, who had been a friend of mine, actually, he'd been a Republican, and he was the Republican leader of the State House of Representatives when I was the Republican leader of the State Senate, so I had known Floyd for a long time. Afterwards, somebody asked, well, uh, Senator, how did you happen to lose the election? And he said, Armstrong convinced every living person in the state of Colorado that I had single-handedly raised their taxes, which I did. And in fact, that was fair. It was, it was true. He had supplied uh, a crucial vote uh, when a huge, I mean a massive tax increase, passed by one vote. And that's all I would talk about. I mean, if somebody wanted to talk farm subsidies, I'd turn it to taxes. If somebody wanted to talk about national defense, I would say a well-timed tax cut can stop a missile in midair. And I wanted to talk about taxes, and, and that was a year when that was the right thing to talk about politically, and of course I was passionate about it. I cared about it. I still care about it. When I came to Washington, the marginal, highest marginal tax rate was 70% on individuals. When I left, it was 28%. Um, I had something to do with that. Bob Dole had a lot to do do with that. Uh, it's crept up since then, but I think that's a huge accomplishment, and it's got a lot to do with why our economy is prospering, why there are uh, good jobs available for many people. So uh, th that's what happened in the in the primary. One, one footnote to this, and it has nothing to do actually with the purpose of this interview, which is about Bob Dole, but it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, after the primary, Jack Swigert and I became really good friends. We weren't, we weren't personally tense even during the primary, but we became very good friends. He was a great guy. He came to me and he said, okay, uh, how can I help? And then after I was elected, he said, here I am, you're the leader of the party, tell me what to do. And so we became very good friends. And he had an opportunity subsequently to run for the U.S. House of Representatives and was elected.
and shortly after he was elected and before he was sworn in, uh, he came down with cancer. I mean, in fact, he, he had cancer during the campaign, but nobody knew it. And uh, he died before he was able to be sworn in, so he never became a congressman even though he was elected. Well, he died in the hospital right here in Washington, and at the instant of his death, I was seated at his bedside, maybe 18 inches from him, uh, reading to him the 150th Psalm at the moment he breathed his last breath. And I will always be glad to have had that opportunity to be present when he, uh, when he passed away. Good man. Brave man. That's a wonderful story. Did Senator Dole help you during the campaign in, in your first run for the Senate? Oh, absolutely. A after the primary. After the primary. After the primary. Uh, and I needed help because uh, our primary was in September. It was after Labor Day, if you can imagine that. So I had two months. Here I was. I, I, my recollection is that I was 30 points behind, but I was way behind popular incumbent. And uh, sure, he pitched in to help me raise money, came out and helped me uh, in the campaign itself and spoke for me and did a lot of things. Of course, you could ask Republican candidates for Senate, governor, Congress, dog catcher, bailiff, or whatever. Uh, there must be thousands of candidates for whom Bob Dole has uh, gone out to do an event, uh, a handshaking tour, a fundraiser, a garage sale, or something. I mean, the, the guy was just a one-man campaign machine. He, he just lifted up the whole party on his own, his own energy and enthusiasm. Tell me what it was like uh, attending a campaign event uh, with him. Did he tend to upstage you, or how did, how did it work? Well, I never thought of it as upstaging because by this time, you know, I was, I was getting to be pretty well known, but he was the star. I mean, he was the star. Very funny, very, very, uh, very quick wit. Uh, not so much in a campaign setting, but I, here's a line I will always remember of uh, Bob Dole's. And, I mean, it was just one of his typical lines that just get thrown away in the middle of a sentence, but it keeps everybody sort of on the edge of their chairs waiting to see what he's going to say next. He's, uh, he's talking about uh, some tax bill, and uh, he says, you know, people don't like to pay taxes, especially those who've never tried it. And... <laughs> He just had that, that, that gift of being able to kind of sum things up in a, in a kind of a, a half a sentence. And uh, he did that all the time. And, of course, uh, out in Colorado, we all, and in the Senate and every place, we admired Bob, first of all, because uh, he was an authentic war hero. I mean, here's a, here's a guy that you could say, I'll follow this man in war or peace. Uh, second, because he was a political hero. I mean, he he had survived the worst that had happened to the Republican Party in anybody's lifetime. Uh, I ran for office in 1962 and then again in 1964. So I was on the ticket with Goldwater, who was another hero of mine. And, of course, Goldwater lost and I happened to win. But Bob was lived through all of that as well. And, of course, through the Watergate era. And uh, so we thought of him as as, 
not at that point as a, in a presidential sense, but as our standard bearer, as the as the guy who who would give the command, and then we'd saddle up and ride to the sound of gunfire. So he was uh, he was he was a star, great uh, great cheerleader. Uh, he was much more than that. But in the in the context you asked that question, he was a guy who could inspire Republicans. Now he did have a much broader impact on the nation and the culture than that, but in the in the context of the campaign, he had this great ability to make Republicans feel good about themselves uh, and to say, we can win, we're on the road, get with the program. He's great at that. At one of these events, would you introduce him or would he introduce you or how, how did that work? Oh, I think ordinarily uh, I would introduce him. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, yeah, I think that'd be the way it'd be uh, many times. I mean, he was the he was the senior buffalo, and uh, so it would be ordinary and customary for him to do that. And of course, uh, Bob was uh, the epitome of political etiquette, so that at a particular event, were I to introduce him, then he would say many complimentary things about me. And, uh, and by the way, he would look out in the audience and see many people he would know, and he'd say complimentary things about all of them. I mean, he was great about that. But by the way, this is a little off the subject because we're, we're talking about campaigns. He was the most generous of all senators in sharing praise with his colleagues. And um, uh, I don't know if this is the point at which you'd like to do it, but I, I, I want to be sure to tell you about that very unusual. Senators as a group, and mostly as individuals, are extraordinarily self-absorbed, extraordinarily self-centered. I mean, that's kind of the way it is in politics, but senators, more than just about anybody, I mean, senators think the world revolves around them. And yet, over and over again, I have seen Bob Dole go out of his way when he didn't need to, to praise his colleagues and in very specific terms. I mean, not just he's a great American, he's a wonderful senator, he's a man of distinction, he's my respected colleague, he's my dear friend, blah, 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 blah. But I mean in very specific terms. And interestingly, not only senators, but staffers. And uh, I, I really never saw any other senator do that to any great extent. Uh, I mean, refer to them by name in a speech on the floor or at a meeting at the White House or at a committee meeting. He'd say, well, during part of those years, Brian Wademan was my uh, legislative assistant on the Finance Committee. He'd refer to Brian by name. He'd refer to Bob Packwood's uh, legislative assistant by name. He'd refer to, 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 to the people who were really doing a yeoman job, and he knew what their contribution was to the effort and thanked them for it and praised them for it. Uh, let me see if I can conjure up uh, a couple of concrete uh, examples. Well, I'll tell you one example. Uh, this is more of a ceremonial uh, occasion. Uh, I will never forget, and I have even to this day, I mean within the last few months, maybe even the last few weeks, have people remind me of what Bob Dole said about me on the occasion of my retirement. I mean, I was leaving the Senate. My 
career in public life was drawing to a close. He didn't have to say anything about me. He had no further stake in my political stock. And he made this wonderful speech, which was so good that, in fact, fairly recently, and I've had it happen a number of times over the years, somebody Googles me, and they come across Bob Dole's speech, and they will play back something he said in that, in that speech. Went out of his way to share the, the credit with people. Quite a remarkable, uh, quite a remarkable thing. Generosity of, uh, of uh, spirit. Well, what was the response? Tremendous loyalty to him. I mean, we all thought Bob was great. We loved him. We admired him. Uh, if there was a, uh, a close call, we would all always resolve our doubts in his favor. Now, that didn't mean we were always on the same side. But if, if it was close, if it could go either way, almost all of the Republicans and many of the Democrats would go with Dole if their conscience would permit them and if you know, the circumstances would. He was great about that. Still is, by the way. Still is. I wrote Bob a letter. <coughs> I wrote Bob a letter recently uh, to tell him. I haven't seen him lately. But I wrote him a letter before this history project came up. I wrote him a letter to tell him that uh, I was going to come to Washington someday and I hoped he'd have lunch with me because I wanted to, to get a little sense of closure with him. That we were both getting older and before one or the other of us passed on, I wanted to have a chance to just look him in the eye and say thank you for your service to our country. Uh, that and, and to thank him for his personal friendship to me and, and the way he encouraged and supported and, and helped me at times when he really didn't have to, but went out of his way to do so. And so I wrote him and I told him I wanted to uh, have that opportunity. One of these days I will. I'm, I'm also very, have, have the warmest feelings of friendship for Elizabeth uh, and uh, great lady. But uh, anyway, I, I, as you can tell, I have great admiration and tremendous affection for Bob Dole. Well, we're on a little bit of a tangent here, which I'm delighted you get, that get we us, are. Get us back on the track. No, no, uh, no, track. I, I want to stay there for a moment because you've been there. Uh, how do you account? I live my life on a tangent. <laughs> how do you account for this uh, characteristic that you attribute to senators of thinking that the world does revolve around them? Well, you know that life in the United States Senate is probably about the most corrupting place on earth. You see, senators are constantly surrounded by people who flatter them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when the bell rings and senators either take the subway or walk across the lawn from their offices to the Capitol, there's often staffers, two or three staffers, trailing them, whispering in their ear, telling them what they, they need to know about this vote. Well, what staffers spend most of their time doing, well, uh, maybe that's an exaggeration, what staffers spend much time doing is, in effect, saying, you're great, you're essential, you're important, the country needs you. Nobody can do this except you. Uh, you are a great American, blah, 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 blah. Well, that is terribly destructive to a person's personality. And then if you've noticed, if somebody steps out of, the, out of their office building, out of the Russell building or the Hart building or something, and prepares to go on the surface over to the Capitol, 
what's the first thing that happens? A police officer steps out into the traffic and stops the cars both ways. And there is a, a deference uh, to senators, uh, which I think is it's, it's kind of like rock stars or movie stars or, I don't know, people who hit home runs in baseball. It is very destructive of the human ego. And if, if you really wanted to find a way to corrupt people, it would be to subject them to that. And then, and then to couple that with making them intellectually dependent upon uh, other people, staffers and lobbyists. Now, senators are called to make hundreds of votes during the course of a year. Six, seven, eight hundred, I don't know how many, lots on matters that they have little real information about. And so often, not on the biggest bill, but on many important bills, they'll come to the floor to vote on the bill or on an amendment that may have implications that are tremendous, knowing nothing about it, and in the last three or four minutes, maybe the last 30 or 40 seconds even in some cases, before they cast their vote, They'll summon a staffer who's been in the room listening to the discussion and in whom they have trust and say, what's this about? And often you will hear, your vote is yes, your vote is no, from a staffer who is, I think in almost every case, honestly saying to the senator, based on everything I know about you and your convictions, your principles, how you do things, how your state will feel about this, and so on and so on and so on, your vote is no. And they'll say, your vote is no. This is the... Smith Amendment on on the on the uh, automobile tariffs, and they'll sum it up in a few words. Well, you, that makes senators very dependent on these these staffers, who are often the intellectual superiors, by the way, of the men and women they serve. I mean, they really are. They're very smart, very smart. So first, you you've got them flattered within an inch of your life. Second, you've got them intellectually dependent. And then third, they, they begin to feel that they're invulnerable, that they're above the ordinary rules of conduct and behavior. Now, that is also very noticeable in other government officials, presidents, uh, cabinet officers, uh, judges particularly, that somehow the ordinary rules, even the ordinary laws, I mean, about things like taking kickbacks, some don't apply to them, but the ordinary courtesies don't apply to them. And then you mix into this periodic episodes that last a year or two in which they're scared to death they're going to lose this job by which their life is defined. I mean, most of those senators, their life changes dramatically if their first name is no longer senator. I mean, it really does. Now, there's a handful of us who left voluntarily uh, from the Senate and uh, whose, uh, who, whose personality, uh, who, whose central existence, whose value didn't hinge on being a, a senator. But it's my observation that for most men and women in the United States Senate, that's what makes them who they are, is I'm Senator so-and-so. And in fact, you'll hear them say it. Uh, I always kind of cringe when somebody says, 
hello, this is Senator Smith calling, or introduces themselves at a cocktail party. I'm Senator so-and-so. I mean, it just that's just a matter of taste. But anyway, I, I think this leads people to be tremendously self-absorbed. And, of course, then you've got the newspapers who are either alternately flattering or criticizing, often unfairly on both sides. I mean, uh, if you're a liberal, the Washington Post and many newspapers are going to praise you beyond what you deserve, and the Washington Times is going to do the opposite, and vice versa. If you're a conservative, the Washington Post and, for that matter, the Denver Post going to be enormously critical. They're going to look for ways to jump on you. And uh, so all of these things together just conspire to uh, make people very, very self-centered. And that's true in public life generally. It's not just senators. But senators have it to a heightened degree because their job is so important, because they're at the center of the universe, because they make such big decisions, because votes are often so close. I mean, one vote, I, this is what I ran on in 78, we have seen how destructive one senator can be when, when his vote imposed on American people the largest tax increase in history. I mean, uh, so they just become very self-absorbed. And, and I don't know, that uh, I may be over overgeneralizing, but the thing that's interesting about Bob Dole is that in the midst of all of this, and, you know, he had a good sense of himself. It's not that... It's not that he was unaware of what an important guy he was, but that how generous he was in sharing the praise with other senators of both parties and with members of his staff and members of the staff of other senators. Now, I've seen lots of senators who praise their own staff. Pretty unusual when you see him, when you see the senator from Kansas praising the staff by name of the senator from Colorado. You gotta like a guy like that. Um, <clears throat> we were <clears throat> we were talking about the the presentation at, at campaign events in that in that first run for the Senate. Uh, <clears throat> what was Bob Dole like between campaign stops? I have no idea. I don't think I ever traveled with him on the uh, on the campaign trail. I was I was with him at you know, a lot of campaign events in Colorado and elsewhere. But I'm just trying to think, did I ever ride in the car with him? I don't think I ever had occasion to do that. I don't, I don't recall that I did. And you didn't share time with him uh, between events in hotels? Or I, I, I do not recall that I did. Uh, let me just give that a good solid think. I don't recall an occasion like that. It may have been. It may have been. So tell me about <clears throat> your first few days in the Senate. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Suddenly, having been a, uh, a, a uh, minority within the minority in the House, a backbencher, suddenly I was a senator. And you know, a senator has such enormous uh, opportunities First of all, in the House, you know, you're limited as to what you can say. If you'll notice on C-SPAN, the speaker or the presiding officer will say, the gentleman from Colorado is recognized for three minutes, for five minutes, for ten minutes, for 30 seconds, sometimes for eight seconds, I mean, for tiny amounts of time. In the, uh, in the uh, Senate, 
quite different than that. When you're recognized, you're recognized. And nobody can take you off your feet. Presiding officer can't take you off your feet. The majority leader can't. The minority leader can't. You're able to stand there and talk on any subject of your choosing for as long as you want to talk. Well, I mean, if you like to talk, this is pretty great. Now, a lot of times nobody's listening, but it's all going into the congressional record, which, by the way, has an enormous influence, much more than you would think. Why would you think that putting down every word in the congressional record would have a big impact? But it does. I mean, there are people out there who read that stuff. And, of course, one of the things I did when I was in the Senate is uh, I pushed to get television brought to the Senate. In fact, it's one of the things I'm kind of proud of that I had a hand in. Uh, And once we were on television, I mean, there are Senate junkies who watch that stuff. And so if you get up and make a speech to an empty chamber, you'll hear about that from all over the country, depending on the content of of the talk, of course. So the first thing is that I noticed is that, uh, uh, I had a chance to have my say. Second, almost all the business of the Senate is really done by unanimous consent. I don't know if you realize that. Senators do vote, but most of the business is actually done when somebody, usually the majority leader or the manager of a bill, will say, Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that the Senate now proceed to the consideration of S-202, or Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that this amendment be laid over until a week from Thursday. A lot of it, the most common expression is unanimous consent. Well, if you don't want to consent, you don't have to. Shortly after I got there, uh, I happened to be on the floor, and Robert Byrd was the the leader, and uh, he was doing something, and I didn't know what he was doing, didn't understand it. So I just stood up and said, I object. And... uh, Robert Byrd, who was very, very gracious, he said, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, let's stand in recess a moment, and uh, we'll see if we can work this out or explain this to the senator from Colorado. And, of course, it was routine stuff, but I didn't know what it was. It didn't sound good to me, so I just said, I object. Well, that ability to throw a monkey wrench in the works, now if you use that technique a lot, you don't get a very good reputation in the Senate. And I don't recall that I ever did exactly that again in the years I was there, although I objected to lots of things, but but not in quite that way or for that reason. Um, But the ability to do so conveys to every senator a seat at the table. And often you will see senators say, uh, object to something, object to proceeding to consideration of some bill. And what you'll then see is the majority leader and or the minority leader or the manager of the bill go to the senator and say, well, okay, what's the problem? And he'll say, well, Jones has got my nominee for dog catcher tied up in his committee, and if he won't let that out, I'm not going to let you proceed to this bill. Terrible system. But that's the way it works. I mean, it's, it's constantly one senator holding the process hostage for something else. Now, I don't, I don't have any problem with that if it is holding the process hostage to some important issue. sort of rankles me when, uh, when the issue is uh, 
getting an appropriation out to build a new courthouse or mule barn, you know, the, the John J. Jones Memorial mule barn, in, mule barn in my home state, I mean, that, that seems kind of petty. But, but that's the way the process works. Then, of course, the numbers are much smaller in the Senate. There's 100 senators. Uh, every vote counts in a way that it just doesn't in the House. Uh, in the uh, Senate, committee assignments are by seniority. In the House, at least in the era when I was there, uh, they were assigned by uh, a committee on committees, which gave enormous power to the leadership. In the Senate, it's all, all by seniority. So that when I was there, for example, the Republican committee assignment started by asking Strom Thurmond, Mr. Thurmond, do you wish to change your committee assignments? And he could ask for an assignment to any committee he wanted to be assigned to. Now, of course, after you've been there a while, you don't want to change your committees. But that meant that a senator is not so much beholden or subject to the, to the whims or the favor of the leaders. I mean, uh, in a sense, leaders really work for the members rather than the other way around. In the House, the, the Speaker is said to rule the House. The majority leader is never said to rule the Senate. Nobody rules the Senate. I mean, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. Uh, and then, of course, in committee and on the floor, I mean, you can do anything. Uh, and that is both the, uh, the nobility and the downfall of the Senate. I mean, you can do anything. In fact, uh, I, if I may, I'll digress and tell you a story about just doing anything. A uh, story that uh, something I did on a whim, which happened to involve Senator Dole. After lunch one day, uh, I was uh, on my way back to the office, and I'd been down somewhere in the center of the Capitol, maybe in the leader's office, I don't remember. But I remember I entered the back door of the Senate. I could have gone around and walked back to my, to my office, but instead I thought, well, I'll just take a shortcut and go through the Senate chamber. Somebody's in the chair presiding. There's a Democrat managing the floor for his side, and here's Bob Dole giving a speech about some bill that he was managing. I don't even remember what the bill was. Only three people on the floor of the Senate. So I walk through, and I do not know exactly what possessed me to do this. But as I walked through the floor, I just called out, Mr. President, would the senator yield? Well, of course, Bob said, well, of course, I'd be happy to yield to my distinguished friend, the uh, senator from Colorado. And I said, well, Mr. President, of course, you know, in the Senate, you always talk in the third person. You always address the chair. You don't say, hey, Bob, what about this? You say, Mr. President, could the senator from Kansas tell me? So I said, uh, Mr. President, uh, I noticed that the senator from Kansas, the distinguished chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, is speaking to the Senate on bill number so-and-so. Uh, is that correct? And Bob said, the senator is correct. And I said, well, I note that on the desk of every senator, there is a committee report, a thick committee report, which is the report of the Committee on Finance on this bill. Is that right? And uh, Dole said something to the effect, well, once again, the senator is entirely correct. And I said, well, I noticed, Mr. President, that this this uh, report says on the cover that it is submitted by Senator Dole, the chairman. And uh, Dole again says, yes, this is correct. And I said, well, I'm just wondering, Mr. President, 
Uh, I'm just wondering if the senator from Kansas could tell us, does that mean he wrote the report? And Dole says, well, no, I'd say to the senator, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact words. He said uh, something to the effect of, well, no, I, I did not write the report. And I said, well, Mr. President, could the senator tell us if he read the report? And Dole says, well, no. And I said, well, did the senator, did the, did the senator read any of the report? And Dole said, no, not necessarily. <laughs> and I said, well, could the senator from, from Kansas, the distinguished and able chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, tell us if he knows the name of any senator who has read this report? And Dole says, well, no, I guess not. And I said, well, I thank the senator for yielding. I just wanted to make that point because in the off chance, on the off chance, that some judge someplace happens to read this portion of the congressional record. And if that judge would someday be inclined to look at committee reports as a valid indication of legislative intent, I hope he will think twice. Because in reality, committee reports are not written by senators. They are not read by senators. They are written by staff members who do not, there's nothing to vote on. If I disagree with some portion of the committee report as a senator, I can't move to amend it. And I just want the, the courts to know that this is not a valid expression of, of congressional intent. And I thank the senator for yielding, went back to my office and went on with it. Didn't think any more about it for a couple of years. Then about a couple of years later, a judge in Alexandria cited this colloquy in one of his opinions. And a while after that, Justice Scalia quoted the judge in Alexandria, Virginia, on this topic. Now, that's not momentous, but it sure was fun. And you couldn't do that in the House of Representatives. It's a very different, very different kind of body. And I, and I don't want to be too critical of the House. I mean, uh, I honor the service of House members. It's terribly important. But uh, as a place to serve, the Senate is superb. Yeah, that must be the greatest job in the world, well, second greatest. I actually have the greatest job in the world now, but it was the second greatest job in the world. Do you recall your next meeting <coughs> with Senator Dole after that exchange? Do not. Mm -mm. But I saw, you know, I saw him all the time. I would see him once or twice or 10 or 20 times a day. I mean, it was not uncommon for us to meet in the hall, in the cloakroom, on the floor, at the White House, I mean, uh, during the six years I was part of the Republican leadership, uh, we were often down at the White House together. Uh, we were on the campaign trail together. We did news conferences from time to time together, though not often, but sometimes. Uh, we were together every Tuesday. I was chairman of the Republican Policy Committee, and uh, so we had lunch together every Tuesday, and I presided at those luncheons, and by tradition, the uh, chairman of the policy committee, which is what I was, presides at the luncheon and recognizes the uh, people who want to be recognized. The majority leader sits on one side of him, and the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, sits on the other, if he's a, uh, a member of the, uh, of the uh, party. So that when George Bush was, was uh, vice president, he sat at my, uh, uh, on my left hand. Am I right about that? Gosh, that's terrible. I've forgotten whether who sat on which side, but in any case. So I was with Dole all the time, uh, just nothing uncommon about that. And in fact, on occasions when I didn't have a luncheon meeting, uh, I would uh, 
have lunch frequently in the senator's private dining room, which is different than the Senate dining room, but in the senator's private dining room, where only senators were permitted. Nobody else, even if you were, you know, didn't matter who you were, you didn't get in there, it was just senators. And I would often find Bob in there. It was very common. Usually seated at the end of the table. In fact, I cannot recall when he was not. I'm sure that there were occasions. Holding court. Telling stories. People were saying, well, what's going to happen about this? What's going to happen about this? And then, of course, the, <clears throat> the most common of questions that senators address to their leader is, can you be sure there will be no votes after 7 o'clock Thursday because i got to go home for a fundraiser? I mean, that is the question that senators really ask their, their leaders is, can you protect me on so-and-so? Uh, can I get paired? Can I do this? Can you hold up the wheels of progress so I can go out to a garage sale that I'm committed to attend? I mean, it is, it's, it's uncanny. But uh, you, uh, <clears throat> my guess would be that you would not have stopped <clears throat> as you crossed the uh, Senate floor <clears throat> and had that same kind of colloquy with another member of the Senate. Well, probably not. Probably not. Uh, uh, I mean, Bob was a good sport. He's still a good sport. I mean, uh, I don't know if he knew exactly what I was doing. He may have very well had some suspicion of it, but as I recall, he didn't express the slightest bit of consternation that I was making a record that these committee uh, reports were not a valid source of congressional intent. Uh, but I mean, you know, he, he was he was very laid back about that kind of stuff. I mean, he 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 knew when he needed to fight to protect his turf and when he didn't. And sh- sure, there's some people who would who would take that well and others who wouldn't. But uh, but it never crossed my mind that he wouldn't take it well. Just as a footnote to that. You know, interestingly, that's a vivid recollection of mine. I think there's a decent chance he may not even remember that that happened. Uh, th- that's one of the interesting things about life, and I have it happen to me all the time. People who come up and tell me about what an enormously important formative instant there was when we were together and they did so-and-so and I said so-and-so. And in some cases, I can't even remember the person. I'm sure you've had that same experience, too. But <coughs> Dole had so many experiences with so many people, I think there's a good chance he may not even remember that that kind of humorous episode. <coughs> so tell me about... But it's in the record. <laughs> it's in the congressional record. And no one took it out. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> tell me about your first committee assignments. Well, when I went to the uh, Senate, uh, it's kind of a bidding process based on seniority, and I was new. But I was very fortunate in my committee assignments, extremely fortunate, partly because I'd been a member of the House, and so they get a little preference. If everybody has equal seniority, if you've been a House member, you get preference. If you've been a governor, you get a, a preference, and so on. So I got great committee assignments. I, I was put on the banking committee, which I loved, by the way. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't have any particular reason to be on that committee, but it turned out that the banking committee is a very, very interesting committee. I have subsequently advised uh, some of my successors to bid for the banking committee, and some of them have done it because it has this great jurisdiction not only over banking, but over housing, over some aspects of international trade, over Fed policy, and that kind of thing. Then I was put on the budget committee because I continued to have this 
great interest in trying to put the lid on federal spending. And I served on the Budget Committee for 12 years, served on the Banking Committee for 10 years. And then I asked for uh, the Education and Labor Committee, which was a mistake. I hated it. I didn't participate in it to any significant extent. I disliked it from the moment I attended it the first time. And basically, uh, I went to a couple of meetings and then just dropped out. I mean, I didn't literally drop out, but I just didn't pay any attention. And two years later, uh, I was able to bid for the Finance Committee and was put on finance. Now, the Senate Finance Committee is, I think, by most estimations, the most significant, most important committee of the uh, United States Congress. Uh, Ways and Means is terribly important. Uh, and there's other very important committees. But I think by general agreement, Senate Finance Committee is the, is the best committee assignment you can have. And I had that for uh, all the rest of the time I was in the Senate. So for the last 10 years that I was in the Senate, I was on the three major committees that handled money, banking, uh, budget, and supremely, Senate Finance Committee. And when you went on finance, was uh, Dole then chairman, or did that come later? Well, I think Russell Long was chairman. I think Russell Long was the chairman. He was a colorful guy. I remember one time, shortly after I got that, forget what the reason was. I guess he called me to his hideaway office in the uh, Capitol, and he said, you know, uh, Armstrong, I don't remember if he called me Armstrong or Bill. He, he had a great, wonderful, congenial manner. Uh, he said, uh, we've been thinking, meaning I've been thinking, we've been thinking about putting you... Uh, on the conference committee on such and such a bill, but I don't think we'll do that because you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to, if I asked you to vote some particular way, you wouldn't feel comfortable to do that, would you? And I said, no, probably not, Russell. And so I wasn't put on that that conference committee. I was subsequently put on conference committees, but I mean, he, he, he knew what he wanted and knew what he needed. He wanted to put somebody on who would be a reliable vote on the Republican side for what the chairman wanted to do. Um, very interesting, uh, colorful guy, and of course a, a throwback to a much earlier era. So <clears throat> you came into the Senate uh, midway through Carter's term. I was elected in 78. And then the Reagan Revolution occurred, mm-hmm. and at that point you went on the Finance Committee. Mm-hmm. In so, 1980. In 1980. So you were witness to that major changes in fiscal policy. Uh, Yes, I was. Actually, I was more than a witness. I was a uh, co-conspirator. In fact, uh, I remember quite, and and of course, Jack Kemp is a dear friend of mine. Jack and Jim McClure and I held some news conferences while I was still in the House uh, talking about cutting taxes, which I passionately believed in then, and I still do, actually. When we did, people laughed at us. I mean, they laughed at us. Uh, they just thought, I mean, guys like Fritz Hollings, for example, they just thought that was the dumbest thing you could possibly. Why would you want to give money back to the taxpayers when we could keep it and pass it out to, pass it back to the cap- taxpayers as grants and subsidies and whatnot? And, uh, uh, of course, Jack took the lead on that and, and really, 
really, really pushed it. Uh, I mean, he was, uh, in his own word, monomaniacal about it. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't say pass the butter, but what what he'd say, well, you know, if you really want to butter up the economy, you better cut taxes. I mean, he was he was great about that. Bob Dole, by the way, was somewhat critical of that. Bob's. I, want, I need to interrupt you here just for a second <coughs> because we need to change tape. Okay. Okay. Give me a couple of minutes here. Can I have a copy of these tapes? All right. We were starting to talk about uh, your time on the Finance Committee. Well, actually, we were talking about uh, tax cuts. And uh, if I could just pick it up there for a moment. Uh, Jack Kemp, of course, was the nation's leading advocate for tax cuts. And there were others, Bill Roth and Jim McClure. I was one of them. There were others. Interestingly, at the early stages, Bob Dole was not a great fan of cutting taxes. I don't know that it was so much that he was against cutting taxes. Is it just it wasn't high on his radar scope? I, I don't really know what was in his heart, but but Bob was very much the the old-fashioned budget balancing conservative. At least that he gave lip service to that idea, uh, and. Uh, it's particularly interesting for a couple of reasons because there was some tension uh, between uh, Dole and Kemp. And of course, later they were running mates. And uh, but but what the story I remember is uh, in some meeting or some occasion I don't remember where uh, expressing his uh, in a humorous way his his feelings about about those who constantly clamored. For tax cuts, he said, "Well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that a uh, busload of supply siders went off the cliff and they were all killed. Bad news: there were two or three vacant seats on the bus." Now, that's kind of typical of Bob. I mean, that'd be about as far as he would go in being critical of somebody. But, but it was it was clear in the at the outset that that Bob was just not passionate about that. Now, later he did become. And in fact, uh, Bob Dole had an enormously important role in, uh, in the tax reforms that took place. And I want to tell you about one of those specifically. But at the outset, that just wasn't quite his cup of tea. Uh, after the 1980 election, but before the president was sworn in, uh, I was part of a group that sat around uh, somebody's office. It may have been Bob Packwood's office. I'm not sure. With Reagan on the speakerphone from California, Kemp was in the room, and I don't remember who else. But there was a half a dozen or a dozen of us. And one of the things we talked about was cutting taxes. And of course, as you will recall, the the, the president uh, is credited with uh, being the great tax cutter, and and rightly so. But in fact, it was Jack Kemp and Bill Roth and some others. But uh, if you want to digress just a little, I'll tell you a story about how that how that 28% rate got put together. I was on the Finance Committee. Bob Packwood was the chairman at this point. <coughs> and I got a call one day and said, from, from Packwood, saying, what would you be willing to give up in order to get a tax rate of uh, top maximum tax rate of 30% or 28%. 
And I said, just about anything. And, uh, and I would. Uh, but he, he was shopping this deal around among members of the Finance Committee and ended up putting it together, and that's how the rates got down to 28%. I've, I'm a little lost as to the detail of this, but subsequently, it must have been... It, I, 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 I'm sorry, I've lost track of the dates, but at some point, uh, Dole, who was by then the chairman... Uh, I may be wrong about that. Was Packwood chairman of the Finance Committee ahead of Dole? That isn't right, is it? He was after. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten the the sequence of events. Um, My great interest in the tax bill, other than cutting the marginal tax rates, was to index the personal brackets uh, because it was clear to me that, that when the brackets escalated, uh, that with inflation, people got escalated into higher brackets. They really had no more effective income, but the government was taking a bigger slice of it. So I wanted to talk about indexing, indexing, indexing. In fact, uh, Bill Archer, who was subsequently the uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and I were, were the big advocates of that. And I got dole interested in it. And in fact, ultimately, uh, Though I was the the guy who pressed the issue, uh, when it came to the floor, uh, Bob volunteered and I willingly, uh, enthusiastically agreed that he would offer the amendment and I would be a co-sponsor of it because he had this towering prestige. And although I was pretty well known by this time in the Senate, clearly a, uh, a dole amendment of this kind would have more support than than uh, if it was an Armstrong amendment, although everybody knew that this was a pet project of mine. Well, two, two footnotes to that, one involving Dole and one involving Reagan. When, when we offered this proposal, and, and Bob did it so skillfully, and of course it passed, the administration, the Reagan administration, opposed it. Uh, the Secretary of the Treasury and the lobbyists came down and opposed it. And uh, I found this very frustrating. Here's the best idea of the tax bill, and they were trying to kill it. Well, we got it passed. So then we had the Democratic House and the Republican Senate. Reagan then goes on the air on his Saturday radio broadcast and uh, compares the two bills and explains why the Republican bill, as embodied in the Senate's proposal, was better than the than the Democratic bill. And the centerpiece of his argument was the indexing provision, that 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 was the reason that he cited, at least, of why this was such a better bill. Well, I saw him a a few days later, and I said, you know, Mr. President, I really appreciated what you had to say about indexing, indexing the tax structure. He nodded or something, and I said, but here's what I can't figure out. Why, if you feel that way, why did the administration lobby so hard to prevent it from being adopted as an amendment in the Senate? And he said, well, I never object to having a tax cut shoved down my throat. And of course, as history records, we were able to get it through the House and it became a a piece of the bill and I, I quit 
keeping track long ago of how much it has saved taxpayers, but I mean it is an enormous amount, an enormous amount. And in that wonderful speech when, uh, when uh, uh, I retired from the Senate, on that sentimental occasion, years later, Bob Dole, among other just absolutely over-the-top wonderful things he said about me, described me as the father of uh, indexing the tax code. And uh, that reputation, which was crystallized by his comments, has followed me ever since. I mean, people mention that to me all the time. Now, I immediately got up and thanked, uh, I thanked the distinguished senator from Kansas, our, our leader and so on, and I said, he exaggerates my role. I was not the father of indexing. Actually, he was the father of indexing. I was the uncle of indexing. But, uh, but in fact, his generosity on that occasion uh, really resulted in sort of making a public record of what I thought was one of the most significant, probably the most significant contribution I made from a legislative standpoint during those, those years. And yet it was he that actually offered the amendment. Now, am I right that that was all part of the 1986 Tax Reform Act? It, it, that must be right. I've kind of forgotten the sequence of events, but it wasn't a part of the first Reagan tax bill. I, I think that is correct. Right. The first one was the... Uh, You're the historian. You probably know better than I. Well, I, I, I have my crib notes here. <laughs> Good. Um, the ERTA um, was the uh, the bill in in eighty one, which uh, was supposedly cutting the uh, taxes by twenty five percent over three years. Yeah, and that had negative economic consequences, which were then corrected by TEFRA in eighty two. Can you uh, sort of recreate some of the, that? Well, of course, there was always there was always this huge debate of whether it had negative consequences or not. Uh, those of us who were supply-siders uh, didn't believe that and, and criticized then, and this debate goes on today, of whether or not tax policy should be scored on a static basis or a dynamic basis. On a static basis, any tax cut will result in a loss of revenue. In fact, in the real world, on a dynamic basis, when you cut taxes, if that stimulates economic activity, it may very well produce a gain in federal revenues. Uh, from lower rates, and that's seen dramatically, for example, in the, in the estate tax. I mean, well, actually, in all kinds of, of taxes, tax rate reductions uh, frequently result and, and usually result in the long term in increased economic activity, which means more revenue. And the reverse is true. If you raise taxes, it tends to stifle and, and cut economic activity and thereby the uh, resulting tax revenues. So the re recession that the country experienced following the 81 tax bill uh, was a temporary, you would say that would be a temporary thing before the revenue flow caught up. I guess I would say that. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I don't think that the evidence is, uh, is, is, I don't think there's much doubt about the fact that, that Reduction in taxes encourage people to uh, invest and work and, and spend and, and all the things that lead to economic prosperity. 
But it's not as simple as just turning on and off a light switch or opening and closing a spigot. It's, it's, it's more complex than that. Now, Dole played a major role in these 81, the 81 and 82, first working with the Reagan administration and then basically opposing them, although eventually Reagan came around. Mm -hmm. uh, were, were you, did you, um, <laughs> I, I'm tempted to use that word witness again, but I mean, were you aware of his oh, negotiating sure. with the White House and how that was going? Oh, sure, sure. This was all, I mean, we were all furiously engaged in it, and of course he was the he was the leader. I mean, he was the more than anybody. He was the he was the leader of uh, those efforts. And did you go down to the White House much to talk face to face with people, or or was it? Well, during the years uh, when I was chairman of the policy committee, which was the last six years I was in the Senate, uh, I was down at the White House basically uh, every week that we were in session. Now maybe, oh, maybe it wasn't every week. Maybe it was two-thirds or 75 percent of the weeks. But there was a meeting of the Republican leadership. We met in the uh, cabinet room and met with the president and talked to him and with Reagan and then later with uh, George Bush. I want to get to that, but um, I want to finish up with the, uh, your time on the Finance Committee. Um, anything else, any other recollections that uh, were telling moments as far as you were concerned? Well, uh, this is not a telling moment particularly, but when there was a tra it's kind of funny, when there was a transition and Russell Long became the ranking minority member instead of the chairman, which had been a long time coming. On the first roll call, uh, they called the names of everybody, and then at the end they called Mr. Chairman. And without thinking, he answered aye or nay or whatever, and everybody laughed. But of course, he had been answering the roll call in that way for I don't know how many years at that, uh, at that point. Bob, one of the things you need to understand to, to really get the the full picture of Bob Dole is that he is a very skillful legislator. I mean, a very skillful legislator. Uh, it is easy to see Bob as a partisan leader, and he was the best at that. I mean, Bob really did have the capacity to rally the troops. And then I, I've tried to share with you some idea of, of his personal warmth and his generosity of, of spirit. But he's also the most skillful legislator of his generation. I mean, uh, he knew how to make deals. In fact, uh, I forget when exactly, but some magazine had a picture of him on the cover of it, and it said, uh, Forger of Compromise. And uh, I think I made some smart remark to Bob, I said, I see your forger of, of compromises, and he said something to the effect of, yeah, I guess that's right. And I said, well, I, I didn't think those compromises were forgeries. I thought they were real. But he was good at that. I mean, he, he, he knew how to make deals in committee, and he knew when to make a deal. He knew whether, to, for example, he knew that if we tried to put the indexing thing on the bill in committee, win, lose, or draw in committee, it would set us back on the floor because the administration would focus on that because uh, Don Regan and others just didn't want to see that in the bill for some reason. So he knew 
how to make a compromise. He knew when to make a compromise. Uh, he knew how to work across the aisle. He was very good about that. I mean, as partisan as he was, and I mean, he was really thought of as a as a hard hitting uh, partisan uh, fighter. I mean, he he was he was a warrior, but he had this enormous respect among Democrats and and treated them well. Uh, and worked with them well, both in the majority and the minority. And uh, he, he was, he's a very, very skillful legislator. Of course, he knew everything. He had, uh, well, just an encyclopedic recollection of what had happened. And he could predict with, with a high degree of accuracy what people were likely to do in a given situation. And he knew what people needed in order to get on board. I mean, these are all just the, you know, that's what legislative leaders need to do, and, and he was good at it. He was really good at it. Uh, can I give you one other insight, just in passing, of a lesson that Bob taught me? I had offered some amendment. I was always offering amendments, and some of them got adopted and some of them didn't. Some of them got adopted the first time I offered, and some of them got adopted the tenth time I offered them, and some of them never got adopted. And my motto always was, there's two kinds of fights. There's the ones we've won, and there's the ones that aren't over yet. Well, I offered some amendment. I don't remember what it was. And as always, I was tallying the votes and so on, and it was, it was not the first time I'd offered it. And, and, and it lost. But I noticed that Dole had voted against me. And... Uh, so I went up to him. He was on the floor. And I said, Bob, I noticed you voted against this. And yet when I offered it previously, you voted for it. Uh, did, did you intend to do that? And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, oh. He says, you remember so-and-so and so-and-so, and you voted against my amendment? I said, point taken. Now, what I don't know and what I probably will never know is... If his vote had been the deciding vote, would he have voted for it as some matter of conviction or to help me, or would he have voted against it? But in fact, this was a way for him to teach me a lesson at no cost, because my amendment wasn't going to pass anyway in this particular case. And uh, I mean, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't mad about that. Uh, I took it for what it was. Uh, he was the master legislator, and he was teaching me a lesson, which is senators have long memories. And so if you've got to vote against somebody, that's okay, but sometimes it has a price. What was uh, his role like on the Finance Committee after he became leader when he gave up the chairmanship of the committee? Uh you know, I don't know that I have a very clear recollection of that. I mean, in the sense that uh, it's all kind of wadded together. Uh, that, that's when Packwood became chairman. Bob Packwood, by the way, was a very able chairman, al although his uh, career in the Senate sort of ended uh, in a crash landing, so to speak. Uh, he was a very good chairman. He was a very skillful legislator. Bob and I were never close. Bob Packwood and I were never close. And uh, in some ways, he was more liberal than, 
than I am, but, but I, I respected him as a legislator. I, I don't know that I can really characterize that because it's just all kind of runs together. But every day that I was in the Senate, in the minority, in the majority, when, when Dole was chairman or when he wasn't, I mean, he was a huge factor in everything. I mean, even before, uh, even before uh, he became leader. I mean, when uh, when Howard Baker was leader, and in fact, I'd forgotten until just this instant. But I remember on one occasion that I was walking with Dole over to uh, the old Senate chamber for a leadership election. And uh, I think I had agreed to nominate him for leader or for something. I, I, maybe this was, I, I don't remember. I remember the occasion, and then I think, I'm sorry, it's, it's lost, but I, 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 uh, there was some doubt as to whether or not Bob wanted to go through with being nominated, but I can't remember what that was. I, I, I've, uh, I've lost it. That uh, selection of Dole as leader was a hotly contested uh, election. As I recall, four votes went through. Remind me who the other candidate was. Well, well it was Stevens, uh, Domenici, uh, McClure, and one other mm -hmm. in addition to Dole, I believe. Yeah. And uh, it came down to Stevens and Dole, yep. and uh, Dole barely won. Yeah, yes, you're, you're, you're recollecting. Now that you remind me, I remember it. Uh, and of course, Ted Stevens is very tough. Very, uh, I mean, wonderful friend. The last guy you want to be on the opposite side from. Uh, but I was for, I was for Dole. Uh, and uh, that may have been the occasion that we're we're talking about. Uh, the, the detail of that is hazy in my recollection, but the essence of it was he didn't want to be nominated if he wasn't going to win. And uh, an interesting story, another, not fascinating, but just kind of an insight into how Dole worked. Uh, after we'd all been elected to positions of leadership, he was the, he was the lead Republican leader and I was the policy chairman and so on. Uh, first thing he did was he called around to the other five leaders and said, are we going to run as a team uh, for re-election? Are we all going to support each other? And of course what that did is you get, first of all, you start with six votes right there, including, uh, there were probably one or two of those votes that if it hadn't been put on that basis might have entertained a challenge from somebody else. He was very astute. So tell me about your time on the uh, policy committee. What was that like? And well, uh, the, the chairman of the policy committee, uh, by the way, that's a job I think that was originally created for Robert Taft. I think it was a rigid, who was one of my early heroes. I met him uh, when I was 11, 10 and 11 years old when he ran for president in 1948. He came touring through Fremont, Nebraska. And he was a great guy. I mean. Bob Taft was, in, in some sense, he was the Bob Dole of that era. He was Mr. Republican, he was Mr. Conservative, uh, Mr. Integrity, and, uh, and ultimately, as, as Bob Dole did, lost out for the presidency to 
uh, more charismatic uh, and somehow fresher faces. Eisenhower in the case of Robert Taft. Well, anyway, the, 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 the policy job, I think, was originally created for, uh, for Robert Taft. And that meant that I had a, a staff of 20 or 25 people that reported to me. And uh, it was our job to develop analysis and ideas and so on for Republican senators, a service organization to senators. Uh, the most interesting uh, part of the job to me personally was, first of all, that I presided at these weekly luncheons. The only time when Republican senators routinely gathered, we occasionally would have a conference. I mean, once or twice a year we'd have a conference where the conference chairman would preside. But, but routinely, the time when we all gathered once a week to talk about the schedule and to talk about legislative uh, policy was at the policy committee luncheon. Well, I got to preside at that. And in fact, when I took that job over, I was a relatively new member of the Senate. I'd been six years, and I was reelected, and then became the policy committee chairman. And so uh, that was good fun. That was uh, gave me a sense that that I was really sort of participating at the higher levels in the Senate. Also gave me uh, uh, an opportunity to be down at the White House and to participate in those discussions down there. Now, I never deluded myself that I had quite the same impact on things that Howard Baker did or that Bob Dole did. I mean, after all, they were the Republican leader. I was one of the Republican leaders, but they were the leader. But still, it was a, it was a great opportunity, a great satisfaction to have a chance to do that. In in pecking order, you were number three mm -hmm, in the nothing. leadership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you. Uh, and but you know, except for the leader himself, every senator is a is a leader. I mean. Uh, we talked about that earlier. I mean, but but senators see themselves as uh, as leaders. I mean, they see themselves as as people who can question presidents, lecture presidents, who can call the CEOs of the biggest companies into their office for uh, a séance. I mean, uh, who deal with ambassadors and prime ministers and kings and potentates and bishops and scientists and you name it. Uh, so they're all leaders. How the Democratic leader and the Republican leader are first among equals, but after that, we were all leaders. How often did you meet at the White House? Once a week when we were in session. So about, I would say, uh, well, not every week, but I, I would say two-thirds of the weeks of the year uh, we went down there. So you must have some stories, recollections about uh, being with the uh, with the uh, policy committee and uh, down at the White House. Sure. Share some. Well, uh, lots of uh, recollections of my time at the uh, at the White House. Uh, I would not say that I was one of the most vocal members uh, at meetings of the White House, which is in a sense, in retrospect, a little surprising because I'm pretty vocal. And I'm, I, I, I didn't think I was elected to keep my mouth shut. And I don't mean to say I was silent at the White House, but, but uh, uh, I don't know that I was the most outspoken person to visit the White House. Uh, on one particular dreadful occasion, when George Bush was considering going back on his No New Taxes pledge, there had been rumbles of that and rumors of that for several days, and I was in really 
distressed about that. Um, I went down to the White House for a leadership meeting, and uh, he threw it out on the table. And whether by prearrangement or not, I do not know. But one after another of the members of the House leadership and the Senate leadership assured him that they would back him, assured him this was doable, that it was difficult, but we're going to back you, we're 100 percent with you, and it's, you know, so on and so on and so on. And uh, I didn't say a word, and as the, uh, at least on that topic, and as the meeting broke up, Mr. Bush was making his way out of the cabinet room. He came over to me and he said, uh, I thought your uh, I don't. I can't capture it exactly. I thought your silence was significant, or was your silence significant? And I said, Mr. President, all these people weren't telling you the truth. This is not doable. It will be agony. It will be terrible. It is a huge mistake. Uh, they have not served you well by what they have told you. Well, of course, in the end, that the the tax increase did pass. But it never gained a majority of Republican senators. I mean, uh, you know, Dole and the others were good soldiers about it. But uh, most of us, and, and I was one of the leaders in opposition, of course, uh, but most Republican senators saw it as I did, that it was that, you know, you don't make that promise and then go back on it. So we didn't. And in fact, what did that have to do with his downfall? Probably a lot probably did. What about um, your observations of Dole interacting with Reagan and then Dole interacting with Bush? Uh, always respectful. Uh, I do not recall any, uh, there may have been one, but I don't recall any occasion when either publicly or privately he spoke disparagingly of uh, Mr. Reagan or of Mr. Bush. Uh, I think there was always a belief that uh, well, I think there were kind of always two contradictory beliefs in tension. One, that he would he would back the White House, that he would be the White House's uh, leader in the Senate. And second, intention with that was the completely contradictory uh, belief that he was a man of the Senate who would do what he thought was best as the Republican leader of the Senate and as a senator from Kansas. Now, at some point, those things come into conflict. Uh, but but I always believed both of those things. and. Uh, and, and there were times, I know, I, I can't cite one for you, but I know this to be true, it's got to be true, that his opposition just changed the White House. I mean, because if Bob Dole wasn't ready to sign on for a particular policy, the White House just couldn't make it work. I mean, because he was a loyalist, and, and properly so. And yet his supreme responsibility was not to the White House. It was to the Senate, to his colleagues in the Senate, uh, and uh, so there were. I, I know there were times, and I, maybe others will be able to tell you this, or maybe uh, Bob himself will tell you of some occasions like that where he just had to say, "No, Mr. President, I'm sorry, I can't do that." 
Would, how would you characterize his relationship with Reagan? Congenial, uh, very deferential? Uh, professional and deferential, but not, not very deferential. I mean, it wasn't... Uh, uh, I mean, you know, he's the president. Dole was the leader of the Senate. And uh, so, in status, they were not equal. But on the other hand, Dole had been a power in Washington when Reagan was still making movies. And uh, so, you you never never had the sense that Dole was in awe of the president or anything like that. They were professional colleagues. They were on the same team. Uh, Bob Dole was always suitably deferential to the president, but not obsequious. I won't mention the name, but I know some senators who absolutely, I felt humiliated to hear their discussions with people because they were so obsequious. In fact, one that comes to mind was so obsequious towards Bob Dole that, I mean, it was just embarrassing. I mean, it just, uh, I don't want to say too much more about it because, you know, this is somebody who's no longer in the Senate and nothing to be gained by it, but my wife Ellen and I talked of it many times of how they'd go to public meetings and this particular senator would praise Bob Dole just beyond the point of reason and it just it just felt so smarmy and uncomfortable and uh, for all I know it was genuine I don't I don't know that it was that it was uh, disingenuous but it just felt so strange but you never had any sense of that with Dole and, and anybody I mean uh, he, he was he was respectful and professional and proper, but you know he could stand his ground. Now, you've you've documented Dole's sense of humor. Uh, Reagan was famous for his too. Hmm. How, did they play off each other at all? Well, I think to uh, to some extent. Uh, I, I yes, I think to some extent they did. I remember one time we were down at the White House for some kind of a meeting. I don't remember what it was, but. Reagan, this was not in a cabinet meeting, uh, not in a a leadership meeting, it was in a different kind of meeting. It was just two or three of us for some reason. And uh, he came into the room and he says, well, you know the recipe for Hungarian chicken soup? And we said, no, Mr. President, we don't. He says, well, first you steal two chickens. And uh, that'd be kind of typical of Reagan. One time I know he came into the cabinet room and uh, we were milling around. Uh, waiting for him to arrive. We weren't in our seats. We were just milling around. And he burst through the door and said, quiet on the set. And uh, so he had a great sense of humor. Now, of course, I was much, much closer to Bob Dole than I was to Ronald Reagan. I knew Ronald Reagan, but we were, and I wasn't a contemporary of Bob's. I mean, I was junior to Bob in age and in other ways. Uh, but I was even more junior to Ronald Reagan and much younger. And Though I had known him for quite a long time, and in fact on one occasion, before he was elected president, and maybe after he had been governor of California, uh, he was the National Prayer Breakfast, and I was deeply involved in the National Prayer Breakfast. And so for some reason I was table hopping. He was seated out in the audience. He wasn't up on the dais. He was at a round table. So I just came over and shook his hand and said, hello, Governor, I'm Bill Armstrong. And he says, oh, I remember you. And he turned to turned to the people at his table, and he says, this guy's my boss. And uh, they said, well, what do you mean? 
Well, it turned out he was referring to the fact that he had a syndicated radio program, which was being broadcast on my station in Denver, and we were buying this program from his syndicator. Uh, so I had known him uh, in that capacity, and Reagan had been out to campaign for me, and uh, uh, so I, I had, you know, I'd known him before he became president, but we were not, uh, we were not buddies. I mean, he, he called me Bill, and I called him Mr. President. That's the relationship we had. Great man. I wish we had another president just like him. Um, did you see diminishment? in his capacity uh, towards the end of his second term? Uh, not particularly. No. Um, no, I can't say that I did. But, but, but let me emphasize, much as I admired him, and though I saw him fairly frequently, I wasn't close to him personally. I mean, uh, I never had a conversation, for example, with him of the length that we've had today. I had a number of conversations with him, some of which were were in very small groups, uh, I mean, one or two, mostly not. Uh, but, I mean, it was just, it was not as casual as that. I mean, uh, the President and Mrs. Reagan didn't invite Ellen and me over for dinner and watch TV. I mean, it, we just don't, weren't on that, that basis with them. What was the mood like in the room uh, with George Bush in charge? As compared to, to Reagan, perhaps. Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I think in some sense, <coughs> well, it was, it was very respectful in both cases. Uh, great affection for Ronald Reagan. I mean, a great personal affection for Reagan. And there were a lot of us in the case of Reagan who felt that our our political capital was heavily invested in him. That if he his stock rose, our stock rose. If if he got in trouble, we were in trouble. Uh, there was an emotional bond there, which in fact served Mr. Reagan very well because he did get in trouble a couple of times. And when that happened, there were people who were ready to come to his defense in a way that was not true of George Bush. And yet, George Bush was seen as more, quote, one of us. Now, I don't mean that in my own case, because I was never one of us in that sense. But, but George Bush was a, a sort of a professional politician. I mean, he'd been a congressman. He'd been a cabinet officer. He'd been a CIA director. He'd been chairman of the RNC. He'd been the ambassador. He was a Washington insider in a way that Reagan never really was. So uh, people were very comfortable with George Bush. I admire George Bush greatly as a person. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Ronald Reagan was the greatest president of our lifetime. Uh, but I have a warm personal affection for uh, uh, George Bush and for Mrs. Bush. Uh, but, but Reagan was a little different quantity. Uh, I never doubted that his closest friends were not in the political sector. They were in the movie industry, they were in business, they were Holmes Tuttle, the car dealer, and people like that, that he knew. Because you see, when he got there, he was the age I am now when he got to the presidency. And his, you know, his 
life was well set before he became president, and he was going to have a good life whether he became president or not. I mean, he was a well-rounded, complete person, and his associations and loyalties and thought life were simply not dominated by politics in the same way that uh, George Bush's were, or for that matter, Bob Dole. I mean, as successful and, and, and as uh, great as he was at it, uh, politics was never quite as central to Ronald Reagan as it was to Bob Dole. It wasn't as defining. Um, what motivated you to decide not to stand for re-election? Uh, I thought I'd serve my, serve my time. I'd been in Washington. I never had intended to be in politics anyway. And uh, when, I was, when I was just a youngster, when I was 25, I was a businessman in Aurora, Colorado, and I was approached about running for the state legislature. And they said, how would you like to be in the State House of Representatives? Well, I knew nothing about the State House of Representatives, so naturally I said, sure, I'd love to. And I served 10 years in the state legislature and then six years in the U.S. House of Representatives and then two terms in the U.S. Senate. And by that time I was, uh, well, I was 51 when I announced that I was going home and 53 when, in fact, I did so. I just felt I'd been there long enough. I, I'm a believer in the notion of citizen legislators. Uh, though I was in a long time, I actually wasn't in any one job very long. Uh, eight years in the state senate, six years in the U.S. House, uh, a dozen years in the U.S. Senate, and I don't, I don't like what it does to you if your goal is to perpetuate yourself in office. Uh, and I don't mean just what it does to others. I don't like what it would do to me if I, if my, if I got up every morning thinking I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. It would turn me into somebody I don't want to be. And if you think about it, I was 53 when my term ended. I could have very well aspired to five more terms in the Senate. I could still be there. In fact, some of the people who were elected when I was are still there. And uh, that may be okay for them. Though I don't think it's okay for the country, by the way. I, I personally am a believer in mandatory term limits. I'm flexible about what they should be. But but in, in my own case, I just I wanted to go home. I... Uh, I uh, I loved my time in the Senate. I'm still very interested in the Senate. In fact, I'm getting ready to crank up right now and, and help a, a very worthy candidate run for the United States Senate, who will be the successor to my successor's successor. And uh, I'm going to make a big commitment to his campaign. I'm going to spend time on it. Uh, I'm going to contribute financially and so on. It's not that I've lost interest in it. It's just that I don't think people ought to perpetuate themselves in office too long. It's too corrupting. It's too toxic. So you announced two years before. I did. I announced in uh, January or February of the year before. And what was the reaction among your colleagues? Uh, well, uh, President Bush called me that day or the next morning and uh, uh, was very gracious about it, and I said, well, Mr. President, uh, thank you for your your kindness in uh, calling me about it. Remember, I'm still going to be a senator for nearly two years. Please remember that uh, I'm still a member of the Republican leadership, so if I can be of assistance to you, I want to be. If you have some heavy lifting to do, call on me. 
many of my colleagues called with similar messages. Uh, I don't know that uh, it had a huge effect on my life in the Senate for the following two years, but it had some. I remember vividly one of, one of my colleagues, uh, a man who had been in the Senate since before I got there and who is still there. So he's now in his seventh term, maybe, I don't know exactly. Uh, came up to me at the uh, Senate prayer breakfast, a little gathering, 25 or 30 senators that meets every Wednesday morning. And uh, he came up to me, and, and I was seated, and he came up sort of to the side or behind me and put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Bill, I, I heard the news about you. And he could never finish the sentence. It was so far out of his context of, of what a person would do. Uh, at least that's the interpretation I put on it. That, that He just couldn't figure out. I mean, he didn't know quite what to say. He didn't know whether to say, congratulations, uh, I'm so sorry, uh, are you sick, have you got cancer, have you got trouble with your family? I mean, none of which was the case, happily. Um, and I think there's some members of the Senate that that took it that way. And, of course, uh, what I did in, in coming home uh, when I did was not unprecedented. Uh, uh, shortly after, uh, Gordon Humphrey did the same thing. Paul Laxalt had quit at a time when he could have been reelected. Jim McClure did the same uh, and others. Uh, in fact, I think it's one of the problems for Republicans. Uh, Republicans tend to be less careerist than Democrats. Now, that's not always true, and certainly Bob Dole, by the way, would be a, a more of an example of somebody who came and became, uh, for whom life in the Senate became a career, and I'm not criticizing that, but, but y y you know, when, when, uh, when Republicans who can get easily reelected have a tendency to quit, it sort of loads the, the dice against Republican control of the, of the body, and I, and I regret that. That's one of the reasons I favor mandatory term limits, because the way it is now, uh, a lot of the good guys go home, and some of the ones that ought to go home or shouldn't have been there in their first place uh, tend to, to stay for a very long period of time. Uh, maybe I could just add this footnote. I am not, I'm not really critical of those who want to come and stay a long time. I don't think inherently being in the Senate is for a long time is, is necessarily bad. I do think that the desire to perpetuate yourself in office is toxic. And uh, maybe there's some people that can handle it. In fact, I guess I'd say Bob Dole would be an example of somebody who did handle it honorably and with distinction. Most people cannot. Uh, I, I think a lot of the guys, including some of them that were my dear friends when I was there, who are still present are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Would you have a uh, special perspective on making a few observations about um, Senator Dole's religious makeup? Uh, I don't think Bob's a very religious person. Uh, a fact which I regret, honestly. 
and let me say that my information is quite out of date. I haven't had a lot of contact with Bob since I left the Senate. I've had some, and in fact, I had occasion recently to ask him to do a, a short video for me when I was inaugurated as the president of Colorado Christian University, and he sent me a very gracious video which I which I used. Um, and so I've had some contact like that, and I've exchanged some letters with him. Uh, in fact, when he wrote me a letter about this oral history project, instead of just sending back word yes that I would uh, be glad to be interviewed, I wrote back in a letter that said, you better better be sure I'll be glad to do this, and I'm going to give him an earful. Uh, but I haven't had much contact with him recently. My impression, though, is... Uh, and this doesn't go quite back to the time I was in the Senate. It was a later occasion that, that I, is formative for me. Uh, is that uh, he's just not a very religious person, and I regret that. Uh, uh, the, the defining issue of my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't think Bob would be likely to say that. Uh, I, I hope that the day will come when he will say that, uh, he is a very good person, a very good person, person of high morals, of sterling character. Uh, but I just don't think he's much interested in, uh, in uh, spiritual matters. As a religious man, uh, how were you able to apply that to your role as a senator? Well, uh, when I became the uh, chairman of the Republican Policy Committee, and began to preside over the luncheon of uh, Republican senators, I began to call each week on a different senator to say grace before we had the, the meal, a custom that endured all of the years that I was the chairman. Whether it still persists, I don't know. It is uh, customary that former members, if they happen to come back and, and are in town on a Tuesday, will... Uh, sometimes go to lunch at the policy committee. I've not had occasion to do that, and uh, uh, I suppose if I'm ever going to do it, uh, sort of return to the scene of the crime, I better do it quickly because uh, most of the members I served with, many of them, are, are now gone. But uh, that's one thing I did. Uh, I thought it appropriate for a group of senators to acknowledge uh, their dependence on on God and to thank him uh, for the way he has blessed us, particularly uh, with a simple uh, thank you for, for uh, this food. Uh, I make it a practice to always pray before meals. And uh, uh, honestly, I will tell you after the fact that I was slightly nervous about this because it had not been the custom previously. And uh, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received, and I just finally decided, well, I know how it's going to be received by God, and so if they laugh at me or, or ask me not to do it, we'll see what happens. Nobody asked me not to do it. A few people, not many, uh, in, in, at the outset, I didn't spring it on somebody. I went to, to somebody and said, next Tuesday, may I call on you to offer the grace? At the end, I'm not sure I did that, but at the at the outset, I did so that I wouldn't catch anybody unawares. And uh, a few people turned me down, 
asked to be excused. Nobody ever was critical of it. Nobody ever jumped on me about it. Nobody, so far as I know, ever said, well, isn't that a little too religious or, you know. Um, second thing that uh, was very formative experience for me, and, and I, I do not recall that I've ever said this publicly, uh, and I, I will tell you this now, it's, it's true, and it's just kind of a side note of my life in the Senate. Uh, I seriously entertained the idea of not seeking re-election after my first term. Uh, uh, I, I felt, you know, I'd been there at that point in Washington 12 years, six in the House and six in the Senate. And I was thinking very seriously of not running for re-election. And uh, I felt God was calling me to run for re-election. I, I did not feel God was telling me, you will be re-elected. I never felt called to be re-elected. turned out I was re-elected. I got about 66% of the vote. But I never felt that as a part of God's calling. I felt called to run for re-election. And uh, I, I never knew exactly why. I, I, I answered what I believed was God's call. But I never knew exactly why whether it was just merely a matter of obedience, because my, my heart actually was telling me, go home, get back to your business. And it may have just been, this is an obedience test. But a couple of things did happen in my second term, one of which was that I became the chairman of the Republican Policy Committee, which gave me an opportunity, among other things, to institute a practice of senators praying together. Second, it was during my second term that I was the uh, main speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. And um, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the National Prayer Breakfast, uh, but it is a extraordinary forum. I mean, here's 3,000 people, including the president, the vice president, two-thirds or 75% of the members of Congress and their spouses, foreign dignitaries, and important people from around the world. And it gave me an opportunity to lift up Jesus Christ uh, in a way that uh, was really a wonderful privilege and opportunity to do it. And that is not always the case at the National Prayer Breakfast. It's somewhat eclectic. Uh, I have heard some messages at the National Prayer Breakfast that, frankly, were just not even Christian. They were just, you know, they were messages of some philosophical interest or some other interest. But uh, I, I thought it was important to, to really let people know that, as the Bible says, there is no other name given by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. And um, I have wondered somewhat afterwards if that was part of why God wanted me to be there for a second term, is so that that opportunity would be open to me, which I never saw it. I mean, I was somewhat surprised when I was asked to give that talk. Uh, and because of, of that, at least partially because of that, not, not entirely, but at least partially because of that, uh, I began to get calls from all over the world to speak at prayer breakfasts. And somehow it got to be my destiny to speak at every prayer breakfast in North America and, you know, across the, across the world. And I've spoke, spoken now literally to hundreds of them, and I'm still doing it to some extent. I'm, I'm a little less able to do it because of my new job at uh, Colorado Christian University. So that may have been part of why God called me to uh, run for a second term. Or it may just have been for some purpose that 
that I don't know. But anyway. Just briefly, um, what about the, uh, the prayer group? Uh, was, is that for both houses of Congress, or is that, was that your group just for the Senate? No. Uh, the, in fact, there are several prayer groups. The, the traditional house prayer breakfast, which in the, in the years I was there uh, had uh, 50, 60 members, would come gather for breakfast and hear a speaker, usually one of the members. In the Senate, there is a similar group, smaller group, 25, 30 people. I guess I would say there might be 40 members, and on any given morning there would be 25, Republicans and Democrats. And in the Senate group, it was always a member of the, of the uh, Senate who led the discussion. And interestingly, some of them, some of the messages were very thoughtful, very erudite. I mean, of course, the Senate is a bell-shaped curve. I mean, you've got, at one extreme, you've got some people who are so dumb, you wonder how in the world did they even get down to the office this morning, let alone get elected. And at the other and most of us in the middle, and then at the other extreme, you've got some of the most intelligent men and women in the world. I mean, you really do. And some of those were members of the of the uh, Senate prayer breakfast. And uh, I'll tell you, they, they delivered some thoughtful message. I mean, I've been gone from the Senate 16, 17 years. I still remember uh, messages by Dick Luger, Sam Nunn, and others. I mean, terrific stuff. Then in addition to that, when I was in the House... Uh, I, I started a uh, house Bible study uh, separate from the house uh, prayer breakfast. In fact, I, uh, I had invited my friend Bill Bright to come and speak, and I'd invited all the members of the house to come hear him speak, and 38 of them did so. And afterwards, he finished his message and said, and we, we met in the little dining room uh, uh, right under the, the house chamber, and afterwards, without any prearrangement, but obviously a, a, a planned question, I said, well, now, Dr. Bright, do you think it would be a good idea if we had a uh, Bible study among members of the House? And out of that came a little Bible study, which uh, started very small. I mean, it was one or two people at the outset. I'm told that that group still exists, or the sort of the lineal descendants of it still exist, and it's, it's quite a large number of people. In the Senate, when I got over there, uh, I started a, uh, a practice of meeting with uh, Dr. Swede Anderson, a missionary for Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, of which I've been a board member the last 16 years, but I wasn't then. Uh, and he and I met together for, uh, I don't know, close to a year in my office. And uh, then another senator wanted to join us, and uh, for convenience, we moved to his office because he had a hideaway office in the Capitol that was convenient. And then for about the next 10 years, we met in his office, hideaway office in the, in the Capitol. And other senators joined that. And, and uh, I guess there was at the end 10 or a dozen senators who came to that pretty regularly, uh, of which on any given occasion there might be six or eight in attendance coming and going. I have, I have heard, but I, I don't have any real evidence of it, but I have been told that that group is now, uh, now meets at a different time, and it is uh, 20 or 25 members that uh, meet together and pray and study the Bible. And my impression is there may be some other 
groups like that that I'm not aware of. So there is quite an active spiritual uh, dimension to life on Capitol Hill. And how separate is that from life as legislators on Capitol Hill? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, it is it is uh, not very, not very separated because uh, you know the same same guys that you're meeting with to pray are the people you're rubbing shoulders with and working with every day. I don't think it ever got to be a problem. Uh, I think it was just generally understood that uh, our brotherhood in Christ, and I say brotherhood advisedly because in the era I was there, there weren't many women senators. In fact, let me stop and think if there were any. I don't recall. There were some uh, Republican and Democratic women in the House. I guess Barbara Mikulski would have been in the Senate when I was, so there, there were some women. don't think there were any Republican women in the Senate at the time. Had been previously. But anyway, I, I think the thought was that if we were brothers in Christ, that didn't necessarily mean that, that I had to vote for your amendment or you had to vote for mine that we had a job to do. We had our constituencies to represent. <clears throat> now, as a practical matter, uh, I'm going to say this carefully because I, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. As a practical matter, most, not all, but most of the uh, men who were interested in spiritual things tended to be Republicans. Not entirely but mostly. Uh, so, for example, in our little group that met in the hideaway office, we were all Republicans, though we earnestly sought to get some Democrats to come and join us, and they just didn't have an interest to do so. In the Senate uh, prayer breakfast group, it was more bipartisan. Uh, there would be a handful of Democrats, maybe more than a handful, but but it was still more Republicans than Democrats, and it was the conservative Democrats at a time when there were still conservative Democrats in the in the uh, Senate. And uh, so that perhaps made it easier, but e even so, uh, you know, there were lots of times when uh, we'd be on one side of the issue as Republicans and the Democrats would be on the other, or, or even within the two parties, there'd be uh, differences of opinion, and so it never became a it never became a problem. Was there a parallel group for for Jewish members? I don't know that. Uh, I don't think there was exactly a parallel group. Uh, one of the Jewish members uh, started a uh, a uh, Bible study in his office, to which he invited me. Uh, to be led by a uh, Jewish teacher, not a rabbi as I recall, but by a Jewish teacher to study the Old Testament. And I thought that was really uh, a great idea. And I came and attended faithfully and enjoyed it very much, and it is a legislator who I admire uh, greatly. And uh, one day he announced that the Washington Post would be coming the following week, and I never went back. Uh, I, I felt that if uh, if this was the Washington, if this was for the Washington Post, it had the wrong wrong feel to it. 
I'm not sure I made the right decision. I could have skipped the next meeting when the post was there and then gone back, but I didn't. I, I felt somehow let down. Maybe betrayed is too strong a word, but I felt let down that my interest was in my uh, my fellow senators and in learning about the Old Testament from the perspective of Jewish scholars, and I thought that was useful. I thought that was good. Uh, felt good. Somehow, letting the Washington Post look at it made it feel cheap. We're at about the end of the second tape. Um, any last comments? Uh, I guess the, 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 the lasting impression I have of Bob Dole is that in the truest sense of an overworked phrase, he's a great American. I mean, he served his country with the utmost distinction in the war and sacrificed terribly and, and still suffers from the wounds that he bears. Uh, he, he was a uh, wonderful member of the House by all accounts. And you remember when he left the House and went to the Senate, his comment was that by leaving the House and going to the Senate, he was improving the average IQ of both bodies. And he became uh, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest, senator of his time. Uh, uh, a partisan warrior, and yet with great friends on both sides of the aisle. The most skillful legislator of his generation. A great, great American. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was fun. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I guess you can tell I like Bob Dole a lot.